Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, Big Mood, Little Mood listeners. I want to remind you of all the cool things that happen when you sign up for a Slate Plus membership. You'll stop hearing ads on all Slate podcasts. You'll stop hearing me reading ads on my Slate podcasts. Think of how much better your life would be if you didn't have to hear that. I know mine would. You'll be supporting Big Mood, Little Mood, and all of Slate's shows. Slate Plus helps keep our shows going. You'll get to hear bonus episodes of this show, as well as all your other favorite Slate shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gab Fest. And you'll have unlimited access to every article and advice column on Slate's website, never hitting the paywall, plus an additional question and answer from me each week. Support our show and Slate's journalism and sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash mood plus. That's slate.com slash mood plus. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Maude Newton, who's written for the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, the New York Times Book Review, and Oxford American. Maude, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Danny. I am so looking forward to this. Um, I am this week coming to uh, all of you from Cornwall, so I'm I'm slowly making my way around the the country and continuing to convalesce. So I am basically just living my best life, tramping around the countryside and um, not being sick, which is those are two of my favorite things. Yeah, that that sounds fantastic. Um, sounds like you went on a hike earlier today, from what you were saying. It was like part hike and part exercise in, um, I always feel like it's one of the cheapest shots anyone can do is to say like, oh, like British national self-conception is everything they say it is. Like th- th- to me, there's nothing like more boring than an American being like, and can you believe the like wacky food they have here? Like it's just, it's been done. It's not even true. That said, going on a walk that was described to us by like a very nice lady with the National Trust as like a moderate hike that ended with about I would say like a full mile, like pushing our way through bramble thickets that involved like crab walking at one point. Like I'm bleeding a little bit. And, you know, <laughs> it was amazing. I felt like I was trying to rescue Sleeping Beauty. And I asked Grace for confirmation at the end. And she said, well, we didn't need a knife to cut through the brambles. So I think I think that was about moderate. And I was just like, fine. You know what? Let's lean into it. I'm an American and I'm used to having nature steamrolled for me so that I can take a pleasant stroll through it afterwards. And you are all just committed to uh, the unsexy kind of self-inflicted pain. And let's not try to learn anything else about each other. That that sounds fantastic. I only wish that Sleeping Beauty had been at the end of the Brambles. The nice thing was there was a really, really beautiful view of Cape Cornwall at the end of the Brambles. Oh. So, um, you know, I got to be uh, sort of like adequately uh, paid back for my very, very minor sufferings. That's the only kind of suffering I'm ever interested in, by the way, just to be clear. It's very, very minor. Um, That's all I'm looking for now. I just want to coast from here on out. 
Yeah, very much the same for me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. With that in mind, because our first uh, letter is probably the most challenging one, and this is the, the one where we're advising someone in the most, I think, kind of difficult situation, we'll start there and then it'll get easier and easier so that by the end, it really will feel like we're coasting. So I'll take this first letter and the subject is living while dying. I'm a young woman, and I recently received a diagnosis of stage 4 cancer. I have lived asymptomatically for a long time, which allowed the cancer to progress considerably. I'm not sure if I'm going to survive this. Several months ago, I began a new relationship with someone. He is kind, and he makes me happy. I haven't told him of my diagnosis yet. Part of me wants to live as my old self for as long as I can, to feel the sense of joy and normalcy that I had before this diagnosis. I'm not sure how much more time I have to feel healthy before either cancer or treatment changes me irrevocably. As much as I love my boyfriend, I don't expect him to see me through this, and I anticipate that his interest in me will change once I tell him. I still want to feel desired by him, to feel like I'm planning a future with him, to feel like I have any future at all. I know this is wrong, but it's the only mode that brings me comfort right now. Have I majorly betrayed my partner's trust by withholding this from him? When I do eventually tell him how should I do so, any scripts would be helpful. Yeah, so much compassion for you, letter writer. I really, I really, really empathize with every facet of this situation. I don't know about you, but what really jumps out to me is the use of the words partner and boyfriend. Mm. Um, you know, and I guess sort of the questions around what a partnership or a committed relationship sort of inherently, ideally entails. And and obviously the letter writer is already thinking along those lines. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think there's so much value in thinking about like, what are the language choices say about this letter writer's like hopes or states of mind. And I think that that's, yeah, I think that lines up really clearly with just like, I love him. 
I have what I think are fairly flexible or realistic ideas about what he may or may not be available for. I'm not judging him in advance for that, but I also know that it means I'll, you know, there's a time limit on this kind of Edenic time we have together where like my diagnosis is not part of it. Um, and I think that's going to probably serve this letter writer really well. I also just want to stress, letter writer, you know, you say, I know this is wrong. I'm worried that I've majorly betrayed my partner's trust. I understand that this will, like, be potentially difficult news for him in his own right. But you also say you got this diagnosis recently and that it's stage four. I would really encourage you to be as easy on yourself as you possibly can. You've never been diagnosed with stage four cancer before. This is huge. You have had no practice or training for dealing with this. It's not like you kept this from a partner of years and years and years. It's not like something has suddenly changed and he asked you about it and you lied. Like, I just really, really want to stress. It would frankly be more shocking if you had just right away said, like, I'm going to talk to my boyfriend today. I know just how I'll do it. Like, that that would strike me as being sort of like superhuman. So to me, I, I I don't want you to use language like, am I maybe betraying him? Have I been doing something really, really wrong? I just want I want you to not have to worry about that kind of language right now. This is not it's hard for me to imagine somebody who would look at this situation and say, like, yeah, you really fucked up. I, I think most people in your position would be doing something very much the same, which is like, oh, it's been a few weeks and I'm still not sure how to talk to my my new boyfriend about this. That's so within the realm of okay, standard, human, kind, reasonable behavior. This is not at all approaching harm. Does that seem true to you? Yeah, absolutely. That's so well put. And yeah, I mean, i trying to put myself um, or anyone in that situation I can't imagine anyone joyously rushing to to tell their partner, especially their recent partner, about something something like this. So, um, I mean, if someone did do that, then that's great. But yeah, I mean, so much compassion for the letter writer. Yeah. And so to that end, you know, I would say letter writer, rather than saying the absolute first order of business has to be telling him right away and here's a script – I would encourage you to think about how you can turn to some of the other people in your life right now before you have any kind of a conversation with him. You don't mention if you've told anyone else. And I mean, outside of your your doctor, you don't say anything about your, your uh, relatives or your friends or um, former partners or, or roommates or anything like that. So I just, I kind of have no idea what sort of support structure you have in place right now. And so... I think my first thought would be, if you also haven't told those people, maybe that's the place to start, um, in part because you can then kind of lean on them and say like, you know, at some point in the next few weeks, I want to tell my boyfriend and that's going to be really difficult. Can you maybe make plans to come over and make me a cup of tea afterwards or watch movies with me or hold my hand while I cry or or whatever? Um, because, you know, it's not unlike... I don't know. I don't want to describe like cancer in this context as like raising a child, but like I think the phrase it takes a village kind of applies here too. And so I would really encourage you to start thinking laterally before you try to figure out how to have this one really difficult conversation because I want you to have a lot of support in place before you do. This is so wise. And this is why you're so good at this. 
Um, That's so kind. But also I'm just like, tell the people you love you have cancer. That's not, I didn't invent some genius new idea. Oh, sure. But it's what you're saying is so true. And I think for certain kinds of people, it can be so easy to sort of yeah, not not think about these ways of ensuring support. And, you know, I'm I'm definitely someone who tends to bring things on myself and and you know, self-blame is is a very sort of common theme for me. So yeah, that's so wise. You know, a therapist, friends, roommates, you know, support system is so important, you know, in this situation. My other thought here, more than a script, because, um, you know, I think your first move should probably be talk to the other people in your life, either who you've already told or who you probably want to tell soon. Start with them and work your way up to him. And and when you do talk to him about this, I would encourage you to do it, if at all possible, while you are outside taking a walk. I think it can be a lot easier to have a really difficult conversation when you're not sitting across a table from one another staring at each other like you're doing a job interview where people feel like they can be more animated and move and 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 turn towards or away from the conversation and and kind of turn some of the intensity that might otherwise be sort of cooped up into like physical motion and, and freedom. Cause that I, I have often found that that makes some conversations more possible where you're like both moving in the same direction. You know, sometimes it's nice to like concretize aspects of a conversation. Like we are literally moving forward together. Um, and I don't mean to suggest like the secret or power posing. Like if you say it while you're moving together, you're not going to break up. I just mean, you know, sometimes that can really facilitate an easier conversation. Again, I just want to stress, I don't know what your neighborhood's like. I don't know what your mobility is like right now. I don't know if you've started to develop symptoms. So if you're like, actually, that's not going to be possible, then, you know, just maybe find a comfortable spot where you don't have to be sitting directly across from each other like a kitchen table. Um, I think the one other freeing thing of cancer is there's no great way to say it. So you can even just open with like, I have bad news or like, I haven't known how to say this. There's not a good way to say it. So I'll just say what it is, which is I have cancer and I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to make it. There is that kind of freedom that you sometimes get in just like really bad news, which is there's no one's ever broken that news so well that it went fine. Like it's just going to be hard to discuss. And you as the person with the diagnosis get a lot of leeway in determining how you want to frame it. But I, I think that sharing with him what you share here, it would be another, I think you've written yourself a pretty beautiful script, you know, um, I love you. I am not expecting that you are going to be my go-to cancer support person. Um, I'm I, I'm planning on getting that elsewhere in my life. I am not asking you to take that on right now. Um, I can tell you a little bit about some things that I'm hoping for or the things that I've loved in our relationship, and I don't expect that you'll have the same clarity or immediacy since you've just heard this news. But I can tell you what I hope and want for the future, and I'd love to hear what you think. Does that feel close to your sense of, of how the conversation ought to start? Absolutely. It's so true. There really is no easy way and no perfect way and, you know, arguably no great way to tell someone this. It's just, it is what it is. And so that makes a lot of sense to me. And I love the idea too of 
not sort of sitting across from someone, but giving it a little space, either through motion or, as you say, through just sort of not not being in that configuration where each person is sort of, you know, called upon to react in the moment with the other person staring at them. Yeah. And so maybe letter writer, it will also feel good to think of it in terms of, I want to have the conversation. I want to spend a little while talking about how he feels. And then I want to kind of block out a period of time where we both can go be, be on our own for a little bit before we come back and and talk again, just to give us both a little time to think through how that conversation went, what we want. And and in that vein of thinking for yourself, you say, you know, I don't expect him to see me through this. And I anticipate that his interest in me will change once I tell him. And I would really encourage you to, and again, maybe write some of this down. What are ways that you anticipate his interest will change? Do those possibilities feel fine to you? Do they feel neutral to you? Do they feel painful? Do they feel acceptable? Um, Because it is rarer for someone to say, thanks for telling me this is too much. I want to break up now. Be well. And it's more common for someone to say, oh my gosh, I would never break up with you after I found out you had a cancer diagnosis because I fear that would make me a terrible person. And then there can be a really variable or inconsistent way of, of their being able to handle the realities of your cancer um, and your treatments and, and the possible side effects those treatments may have. So I just think it will be helpful, again, not to have like, if he does X, Y, or Z, then I'll know I'm going to break up with him. But just to kind of have a sense of mind, how will we potentially, how will I potentially, how will we potentially screen for, oh, no, 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 I want to be here for you. But then either I'm overwhelmed or I'm afraid that I'm not doing a good job and I don't want to think about what it means about me if I'm not doing a quote unquote good job. So I'm going to pull back like just think ahead about like if he's becoming really unavailable and I'm finding myself getting really anxious and stressed about how he feels about me. When will I decide that's too much and I want to break up with him so that you are able to prioritize your own emotional well-being and think through like if it's possible for us to do some of the normalcy and joy, I want that. And if he is really inconsistent or not present in ways that are making living with my diagnosis and treatment harder, then I will end things. Um, I think that will also go a long way towards making you feel more confident because, again, just it, it's rare that somebody will give you that perfect clarity. Here's what I'm going to be like in a diagnosis. It, more often, people are going to say, I want to be great. And of course, I hope he is. And I hope that if you're able to clarify, like, I'm not expecting and frankly don't want you to drive me to my chemo appointments. I already have these people doing it. Maybe you two can continue to plan wonderful and exciting dates. Um, but I think, again, just as long as you're really clear, like, I'm not asking X, Y, or Z of you, and I'm also available to hear what you want. Um, I, I hope that things go well. And whether or not that means you'll date for a long, long time or or, or whatever, just that whatever decision the two of you make next about your immediate and then medium-term features, um, you can do so freely, openly, unashamedly, where he can really trust that you mean it when you say you don't have these huge expectations of him, and he can in turn be honest with you, um, and that you also have just a lot of other people on your team so that, you know, it'd be great if you could keep dating and having a good time because no one wants it to be all cancer all the time. Like, everyone wants to be able to do something fun. I just, I really hope all those things for you. Um, and I hope that you get great, great treatment and care 
Um, please write back. I would love to hear more about how things are going either with your boyfriend or just with your friends and other people. And of course, if anybody else has had experience of either discussing like a surprising or, you know, intense diagnosis with a new partner, um, whatever that's looked like, I'd love to hear from you if you have any other thoughts. So please do consider writing in with your experience. And then I think it's probably time to move on to our second letter, which you have graciously agreed to read for us. Absolutely. The subject is just want my aunt back. My aunt, we're not blood related, has always been the most stable and easy relationship in my life. I've seen her once a week since I was a baby, and she is my go-to person when I have a problem with my parents. Lately, she's gotten involved in a political organization that even she admits is a little, quote, culty, with a centralized leader who has complete authority over everyone else. Though I don't think their positions are generally harmful, I do disagree with them on some issues, and I don't like the way the organization is run. I'd be fine interacting with her and just not discussing this one thing, but she has a tendency to overwork herself and doesn't really have much time or energy available to do activities together. She makes time for us to just hang out and talk, but she doesn't seem to have anything happening in her life except this and work. She wants to talk about why I won't go to her political events and why I keep changing the subject when she brings this organization up. But I started avoiding these discussions because in the past, I've felt like I can't keep up with the constant stream of prepared counterpoints and would end up crying because I felt awful that we were disagreeing about something, parentheses, I cry easily. I feel like if I tell her I don't like the organization, she'll try to argue with me, and I'm not prepared to read hundreds of pages of theory just to properly explain myself. In the past, when I said I didn't want to discuss a particular event, she immediately asked me why, and then later asked if she could tell me about it. She considers herself very good at setting boundaries. This is a skill learned from necessity. Her family is terrible with boundaries, but she's not doing well with mine. She joined this organization with her ex, although they later broke up because her ex wasn't far enough in their addiction recovery to manage a serious relationship. I almost said something when she was telling me about how she was holding her ex's dog at an event Someone else could have held the dog, but I didn't know how to say it. How do I talk to her about my concerns without getting drawn into a political debate I can't win? I know she respects my insight about things, but on this one topic, she gets really defensive. I could just tell her I don't think she's being healthy with her ex, but it's not just that. If she actually fully cut contact with that person, I still wouldn't feel great about her involvement in the organization. I kind of love this letter because I've seen many variations on it over the years, but almost never about someone's aunt. Like that felt like such a genuinely new element. Like more often it was a sibling or a close friend or even an ex. 
Um, and I've never heard from someone who's like, boy, I'm really invested in my aunt's relationship with her ex. And I really think I know what's best for her. And I, I don't know. I just kind of love that. It felt a little bit like a Jane Austen plot, subplot, to be clear. Like this wouldn't be the A line, but it would be the B or the C. I can completely see that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of different threads to pull out here. One is like, how do you have a difficult conversation with somebody who's maybe likely to argue a lot and wants to argue back and forth? And how do you kind of figure out how not to do that? Another is, you know, how much of your opinions about somebody else's hobbies and relationships with their ex is is good to share with them versus maybe counterproductive. And, and maybe then also perhaps a sense of like, is this a good opportunity to check in with our own level of like relying on a relative when maybe like peers could be doing more of that work. Um, I don't know what, what felt the most sort of like immediately interesting or immediate uh, issues to you. Yeah. I was really interested in the discussion about boundaries um, in part because I myself, you know, over the course of my life have had, you know, we'll call it a, an evolution around boundaries. Um, wasn't really something that I grew up with. So, you know, developing them has been a journey. Um, and I felt like I sort of recognized some things that were maybe going on here. You know, I completely respect that the letter writer um, describes her aunt as having trouble with boundaries. And one thing that I've noticed from long experience is that, you know, it's not uncommon for two people in a very close relationship and a very important relationship to both struggle with boundaries. If one person does, you know, there there may even be a, a slightly greater likelihood that the other person will, you know, become entangled in that sort of boundary fuzziness. And so, yeah, so I, I just, I felt a lot of sort of compassion around like the idea of this kind of, you know, being so committed to this organization and really excited about it and really wanting uh, the letter writer to be so involved, you know, while, yeah, and and the sort of like exhaustion on the letter writer's part, feeling like, oh God, and then I'm going to have to talk about this and you know, but again, sort of from long experience, I can sort of see the ways in which this is a, a boundary thing that's going both ways. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think to me, the things that felt the the most sort of representative of that both ways aspect was one, it makes a lot of sense to feel sort of like anticipatory anxiety of, I want to tell someone I love that I don't want to hear a lot about this organization they've recently joined. And I'm already like just nervous in advance because I know they're going to have like eight talking points. They're going to want to have a debate with me. And I don't want to have a debate, which I think is a reasonable thing. Like as much as I think it should and could be potentially useful to have difficult conversations with the people we love, I also really recognize that fear of like, I know what they want. And that is to like go 12 rounds and then declare a winner. And whoever wins <laughs> has to like get the other person to sign an affidavit saying you're right and I agree. And then on the other hand, I was sort of, you know, I, I, I really like my ears perked up at that line. Um, I'm worried that I would end up crying because I'd feel awful that we were disagreeing about something. And that to me felt like, oh, 
that that is something that maybe the letter writer needs to to take a look at right now. And letter writer, I just want to really stress, it's okay that you cry easily. I don't want you to feel bad about that. I really, really get your desire not to get into a huge back and forth with your aunt. Um, and I'm really glad that you two are close. I think that's wonderful. But you say you feel awful that we're disagreeing about something and with deep love and gentleness, um, I, I, I have to give you the bad news, which is just that you are going to disagree about things with people you love for the rest of your life. And it may be that until this point in your life, you have either been able to avoid acknowledging it um, within some of those relationships or to put off some of those conversations. Um, but might I'd be willing to bet you already have disagreed about things with people you love before. And maybe that went really badly. Maybe you got shouted over and, and you've just kind of thought like, that's what disagreeing looks like. It means just like painfully relinquishing love as somebody else chooses something like shouting over you. Um, but I want to, you know, both like offer you that kind of bad news and then also offer you the encouraging news, which is it is possible to disagree even about some important and serious things with the people that you love in ways that don't involve like um, thinking we must have totally like incom mutually incomprehensible values or we don't really love each other or we have to fight or this is a permanent rupture between us. And I, I don't, I don't want to make that promise like across the board. Sometimes that can happen, but it is okay and necessary to disagree with people that you love about something. And I think this level of you're really invested in an organization that I'm not wild about, but that does probably some good work. And I think you're also a little hung up on your ex are not necessarily insurmountable disagreements. And I can't promise you that, you're, that your aunt's going to handle any of this perfectly or that you'll get what you'll want right away. But I can tell you that your relationship with your aunt can survive these disagreements. And so you don't have to just hope if we never talk about it. That's the only way we'll be okay. Um, so yeah, I, I think just to like balance out the bad news with the good news, which is you're going to have to do some version of conflict around this. And you're going to have to do it more than once in your life, again, with other people. Um, but it is not necessarily the worst. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes just, you know, gently and generously and positively sort of bringing these kinds of disagreements forward in exactly the kind of way you described can really create an opening where the other person feels more acknowledged you know, um, I mean, it sounds like the aunt, though a wonderful ally and friend and relative, you know, has some, a little bit of difficulty with disagreement potentially. But, you know, at the same time, the aunt could be responding to this sort of like slight avoidance of mm -hmm. conflict. And so just sort of naming it and allowing it to exist within the relationship might actually cause an ease between the letter writer and the aunt that, that might surprise the letter writer or not, you know, mm -hmm. but, but often I find with people I'm really close with um, at this stage in my life, at least, you know, mm -hmm. naming the disagreement can really be helpful and let some air in. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to that end, I always think it's useful to do a little bit of triage of like what's really critical here and what's something maybe less so. To to my mind, the stuff about being a little hung up on her ex, I, I would probably not encourage you to prioritize that a ton just because 
in my experience, I've never had a conversation with someone where I said, even the gentlest version of, you seem kind of hung up on your ex. Yeah. Do you want to stop doing favors <laughs> for them? No one's ever said to me, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You're right. Um, and if anyone's ever said that to me, I've never, I've only ever like gotten defensive or bristled. People just generally, I, I think when they do favors for their exes, like hold a dog at an event and they're like talking a lot, like they know on some level they're hung up on their ex and they are not ready yet to let go of the belief or the hope that being super helpful and around all the time is going to rekindle an ex's interest. And then I think that's one of those things where it's just like, it's not killing anybody. She's got to learn that one for herself. Don't wake a sleepwalker. Um, I remember, I think the only, I think the, like the last time I tried to do that, especially like unsolicited to someone was in college and I had made a joke about some favor somebody was doing for someone I knew they were really hung up on. And they just looked at me and they said, fuck you. And they were right to say it. It was totally out of line. It was totally none of my business if they wanted to do this thing for this other person. And that was the last time that I weighed in uh, uh, unprompted on that front. So again, not to say that your aunt would say that's just like she held a dog for a while. That's her call. Um, I would I would let that one go. Yeah, I completely agree. I think fuck you is, you know, a not uncommon response, whether articulated or not to, to any commentary. And this was from a really nice person. Like this was a real, like I really <laughs> took that fuck you to heart. Cause I was like, yeah. All right, if I made this person say fuck you to me, <laughs> I really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So letter writer, I think again, in the spirit of triage, here is how I would encourage you to think about addressing some of these issues with your aunt. And I'll just go through the letter uh, chronologically. Cause that's easiest for me. You know, this has always been the most stable and easy relationship. I've seen her once a week since I was a baby. She's my go-to person when I have a problem with my parents. I felt like that was part of what you led with because there was a sense there of this is how our relationship should always be. And I just want you to be prepared for, I hope this is a relationship that remains close and vibrant and meaningful and mutually supportive for the rest of your lives. I really, really do. I think that's possible. I also want to encourage you to think of the possibility that you might go through some seasons where you don't see each other every single week, um, where you don't always go to her when you have problems with your parents, that you might start adding, again, not that like you could never discuss your problems with your parents with her again, but that you might start adding other people to that roster um, and, and thinking about ways that you can get that kind of support from more than one person. So you're never just relying on only one. Um, and to think about like, this is a lifelong relationship that's had a lot of stability and ease sort of like in the tank. And that's hopefully going to get us through some more difficult times because all relationships go through more difficult times. So not like, therefore it's got to be stable and easy forever. We must never fight. But like, how can I think ahead to what are places I can let disagreements go? What are places where I want to lovingly pursue conflict? Um, and, and how do I balance out the two um, without expecting that this will be the thing that we experience forever? Then that the, you know, the, the most difficult one is I kind of want her to scale back on what she does in this organization, but I'm also aware I can't really control that. What I'd really like is for her to minimize how much she shares with me about it and not ask me more than once why I don't want to hear about it. I do hope some of that's possible. You know, letter writer, you say, 
You mostly change the subject when you bring the organization up. It's a little unclear if you've ever come out and said, like, I'd rather you don't talk to me about this at all. I don't like this organization. I don't think they're evil, but, like, I'm just not wild about it. Or if you've just more avoided it. So, you know, I I do think that one more conversation might be beneficial there. And I really think you should just say, I know I haven't always been clear on this subject. Part of that's been because I don't want to tell you what to do or seem interfering. Um, But also part of it's because I've been worried that you will not really hear me out, that you will immediately want to fight or disagree or argue about it. That's gotten me worried. So I just want to sort of start this conversation by saying, I feel nervous bringing this up to you. I really hope that you'll hear me out before you try to disagree or or get me to change my mind. Um, and I really also want to stress, I'm not trying to tell you what to do or that this conversation, that this group is like bad or evil. Just as you know yourself, some of the ways that it's organized is pretty authoritarian. I don't love that. And um, I think some of their goals are a little out there. And I would love it if you could keep the updates about that organization with me to a minimum and if you would stop inviting me to go. Do you think that's possible? Do you think you could do that? Um, I, I hope that she would hear you out. If if she just immediately started fighting, you could always just say like, I really want to encourage you to sit with what I've just told you before you come back to me with a response. So I'm not going to fight today. Let's talk about this in another day or two, which again is not like unilaterally saying like, I'm telling you what I want. I'll never listen to your perspective. Goodbye until you can abide by my rules. But it is making it clear that you're not ready to immediately go into debate team mode. I do think that's possible. And again, like, you know, you know, you cry easily. So that's okay. Like if you do cry, that's fine. It doesn't mean anything's like hideously wrong. It doesn't mean you failed. It just means you're crying. And again, if it helps you to acknowledge that out loud, you can just say like, I want to acknowledge I'm crying. I wish I weren't, but it's also just something that I do when I get a little frustrated and it doesn't mean that I am dying or devastated. It just means that, you know, my body produces tears when I'm kind of frustrated and I'm frustrated because I love you. Um, and and yeah, if you feel like she'll just try to argue and, and you don't want to read hundreds of pages of theory, you can just say that. I know that can feel hard, especially when somebody else is in argumentative mode and it feels like I can't get out of this conversation until they give me permission by saying you've argued well. But that doesn't happen, right? Like people don't actually say that. So you'll need to just, even if you have to like write it down, like write down the sentence you need to say that will say like, you know, I hear your objections. I told you I don't want to fight about it right now. I really do want you to just consider what I've said in the spirit of love and openness. Let's talk again in a couple of days. I'm going to go and then be done with it for that moment. Yeah, that's all so wise. And i I'm wondering also what you would think of the possibility, you know, something that I I feel like I might be picking up on from the letter writer is a sort of unarticulated fear that this might sort of rupture the love and acceptance between the letter writer and their aunt. And so, you know, I'm wondering what you would think, Danny, about the letter writer explicitly saying that. Does that seem... How would that land for you? Yeah, you know, that is challenging. It's a little difficult because it doesn't feel like they've quite had the really direct conversation yet. So I think maybe a lot of this is just fears on the letter writer's part, possibly because she hasn't had a lot of like moderate conflict that ended okay. Right. Um, 
in in her relationships and so maybe thinks like good relationships you pretty much never fight or you pretty much never disagree about something big because if you do then everything collapses um that said it is possible although i i hope not the only option but i think it is possible that if the letter writer said even the most kind of like gentle version of what we've suggested here that her aunt would just be like really, really hurt and defensive and just, I can't believe you would say this. This is my new favorite thing. This organization is my values. If you don't love this organization, then you basically don't love me. Like worst case scenario. You know, that would always be one of those situations where I would encourage somebody to hopefully like think of the long game. Like if this hasn't been a pattern of like blowing up and saying, love me, love my organization, then you can say like, this is a lot, maybe let's check in and again in a few weeks and then go more in that conversation. Um, check in with some of your other friends or I think that's why I like mentioned peers at the top. Cause I just, I really felt like this relationship with the aunt is such a load bearing relationship and it's not, I don't want to advise people like go get a lot of friends preemptively. Cause you have to assume that someone's <laughs> always going to let you down. But I do, I do think part of what's, you know, nice about at least a, a slightly wider group of people that you turn to for support and conversation on a regular basis is if you go through a fight with someone you love, which just happens, it's not, that's my only avenue for connection and intimacy. So if she does get really defensive, if it gets really, really bad, think of this one conversation weighted against years of love and support. Try to speak patiently where you can and just like really emphasize like, I'm just asking for a limit here in our relationship. I'm not saying this organization is evil or that you must quit. You know, don't bring up the X, like stick to one thing at a time um, and just say like, can we maybe check back in in a few days when we've both had a little time to cool off? I think hopefully that would ha- that would produce results. And again, I can't guarantee that your aunt won't go really, really big in her reaction. But if that does happen... I'm not sure how you could avoid it, frankly. Like, even if you pretended to feel fine about it, it just sounds like you've already kind of hit your limit in terms of being able to hear about it. So I don't think that we're offering any advice that would, like, preemptively or unnecessarily blow things up. Like, I think it's already there. Well, that feels like kind of a useful moment to move away from this one individual uh, niece-aunt relationship and to think and talk a little bit more broadly about family relationships because you have just written a book uh, about family inheritances and and legacies. And um, I'm so, so curious to hear a little bit more uh, about what that research process has been like, about what writing it has been like. Do you have any insights into the aunt-niece relationship that you want to share with our listeners today? <laughs> Um, yes, I have just written a book that sort of, as you know, it involves my own family. It's called Ancestor Trouble, and the subtitle is A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. So, yeah, I mean, it sort of starts with a lot of trouble in my own family. Um, I started, you know, it's kind of about genealogy. So I started researching my family really casually years ago. Um, My mom and my grandmother always had these stories. And over time, I heard that my grandfather was supposedly married 13 times. His father had supposedly killed someone with a hay hook. Those were stories I was curious about, you know, could this really be true? 
And then on my father's side, as I sort of started delving, he was this very overt white supremacist. Um, And when I say very overt, like he spanked me for watching Sesame Street kind of person because black and white kids played together on the show. So, you know, I knew that um, because he was a defender of slavery, I knew that our ancestors had enslaved people. Um, and I always felt really drawn to, you know, reckoning with that in some way, but I wasn't really sure what that would entail. So, yeah, so the book uses my own family history and discoveries, and then it takes the reader into a lot of sort of like genealogy, genetic genealogy, the idea of, um, intergenerational trauma, generational wealth, um, the body, you know, and, um, yeah. And then ultimately sort of into like spiritual, spiritual importance of ancestors and creativity. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, it is remarkable and, and complex. And I'm so curious, too, like, um, when you said that, you know, ancestor trouble, my first thought went to Judith Butler's gender trouble. And I was curious, like, was there any degree to which you felt like that title was engaging that particular history? Or was that just like, nope, we were just both talking about different types of trouble, unrelated? Yeah, I mean, that's that I hadn't thought of that. In fact, um, although I do, you know, I do really love Judith Butler's work um, at times, I... As I worked on the book over the years, the title that was in my mind was Ancestor Hunger. Mm. And my agent thought it was confusing, which is probably true. And my editor described the publisher's reaction at Random House, the sort of team's reaction as, I think she said, a firm neutral. So, you know, I started playing around with other ideas And they were all really terrible and ponderous, and they all included the words ancestors and trouble. And then my partner, Max, sort of as a joke said, oh, you could call it ancestor trouble, which is actually a little bit of a callback to one of our favorite Looney Tunes um, cartoons. (laughs) So they're, you know, Daffy Trouble, I assume. It's, It's pronoun trouble. Um, You're he kidding have me. To, no, he doesn't have to shoot you now. He has to shoot me now or, you know. Um, Boy, if I knew how to pronounce that French expression, plus qu'à change, <laughs> I'd say it right now. Um, but suffice it to say, plus qu'à change. <laughs> Absolutely. So I immediately, when he said it, I was like, yeah, it has to be that. And luckily everyone agreed. Um because I could imagine a situation in which people would have thought it was too flippant. But, you know, what I love about it for my book is, of course, like my secret knowledge that Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny have this role. Um, But also, you know, it's both serious. It's a really serious problem, I think, that A lot of us, especially, you know, white people who come from colonizers and settlers in this country, um, really, you know, reckon with whether we do it explicitly or not. Um, And then it also has this sort of more light 
touch to it, which I think is is always helpful when we're looking at things that are really hard. It, it sounds like then you're thinking about questions of ancestor engagement that exist both within and without the concept of the family, which really interests me because I think there's so much um, held within this idea of your ancestors belonging to your family and therefore something private, something um, that can lend itself to the secret versus the idea of engagement with ancestor travel at the level of uh, colonization, which immediately calls to mind questions that have to do with, uh, you know, uh, governments, institutions, societies, um, you know, tax records, numbers, um, con- concrete public um, issues. And, and that seems like such a useful and vital project, especially in the question uh, of things like socialist revolution, uh, family abolition, uh, the the question of reparations. Um, and, and I wonder, did that surprise you? Did you think I'm just doing things that look at different individual families and then it opened up more? Or did it feel kind of like, no, this is all, all, always was going to go beyond the family? Yeah, I mean, I knew that I wanted the book to have this sort of structure and scope when I started. I didn't, of course, I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but the outline that I came up with toward the beginning really stayed with me. My my editor wanted me to come up with one, and I was sort of like, okay, well, you know, I didn't articulate this, but I, within myself, I was like, yeah, outlines and me, hmm, doesn't usually work, but sure, we can go through this exercise. But it was really, really helpful. Um, and yeah, I mean, one thing about writing this book is like, I knew, so as you know, there are some stories about my family that are a little extreme or a lot extreme in the book. Obviously, people over time had said to me, oh, hey, you should write a memoir. And I didn't really have any interest. I was like, you know what? I'm pretty familiar with the intricacies of my family um, and the sort of dysfunction and trauma and all of it, you know, and of course the good things too, but... It felt like it would be sort of like being locked in a box with all Mm -hmm. of that. But, you know, as I started researching my ancestors and noticing all these patterns, you know, the idea occurred to me like maybe one day I'll write a book. And then when my agent um, encouraged me to think about like what a book I would want to write might look like after I had just finished writing a piece for Harper's that ended up being sort of the seed of the book, I realized that I wanted to write this, this sort of back and forth, like using my family as a sort of starting point for looking at all of this more broadly. And, you know, I'm really interested in ancestors as a sort of like as inspirational figures so I really love what the queer community is doing around that in particular but I didn't really get into that in the book I I did really want to stay sort of focused on biological and potentially also adoptive Mm -hmm. ancestors and the ways that our sort of personal predicaments around all of this, our personal traumas, our personal silences, how it all really connects, you know, to, as you say, these larger 
for lack of a better word, ancestral organizations, you know, and these, you know, sort of how my family's connection to slavery and connection to genocide of indigenous people ties in to these broader conversations that we're having and efforts that we're taking to dismantle um, white supremacy. And so, yeah, it's become really, the didactic aim of the book is really to encourage people to come forward and talk about their personal family histories. And by that, I don't mean that we should, you know, find our Black friends and unburden ourselves about what our families did, but we should, you know, speak very much the policy people. of this show. Don't yeah. bother, <laughs> don't bother your black friends with your own <laughs> personal shame about your own white ancestors. So, right yeah. there with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, but you know, as we're having these important, larger arguments about, you know, critical race theory and what does it have to teach us, I believe there's something really important about making it personal. So when we encounter, you know, that yucky resistance from someone we don't know very well, and they're like, well, slavery was a long time ago, you know, rather than sort of coming back at them with a talking point, you know, if we can say, hey, you know what, a little more than 150 years ago, my ancestors were enslaving people. And that really weighs on me, you know, and that, and I feel a responsibility to advocate for reparations and to, you know, to really ponder, you know, what my responsibility is in light of that. You know, they might still respond with, you know, something dismissive and um, or racist, but but it might crack something open for them. Yeah. No, and there's so many different fronts at which engagement with the recent past and the semi-recent past is is useful, both in terms of how it can inform present social, political um community-based projects and solidarities and 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 so forth. And there's also just ways in which it is, you know, meaningful and useful on a personal level. And it's quite yes. um, remarkable to think about, you know, how do you weave them together both in this book and in other books? And um I'm I'm just really excited for listeners to get a chance to to read it. And thank you so much for um telling us a little bit about it. And uh thank you so so much for coming and sharing your uh thoughts and wisdom with all of us. Danny, I have loved every second of it. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, this was just wonderful. And if you could maybe one last time let our listeners know where and when they might be able to pick up a copy of your book. Absolutely. My book is called Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. It is available at bookshop.org, IndieBound, so you could get it from your independent bookstores, or, of course, any of the other booksellers out there beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. 
And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. One of the reasons this seems unnecessarily complicated is like you and Amber are both like carrying forth messages on behalf of your parents. Yeah. I would just say like one of the easiest ways to let the parents figure this out is the next time Amber asks you just say like, oh, you should have your mom call my mom directly. Like, I don't know their schedule. Um, Check in with them. That's it. I I think that's the easiest way. And then if your mom realizes like, oh, I actually don't want to go back and forth with her. I'm like willing to say it fine. Or if your dad's like, oh, at last it's coming to us directly. I can like make it really clear. I'll do it for free or not at all. Like they can hash it out between them. But let your parents handle this. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.